Listeners, start your podcast players because F1 Break Check is back with our second installment of the offseason. Just when you think the offseason will be boring, F1 never fails to deliver news, and this week is no exception. We will talk about the latest happenings in the world of F1, and Corey and I will talk about one of the most notorious cheaters in F1 history. So strap in and grab the wheel as F1 Break Check drops the hammer. Welcome. You are listening to F1 Break Check. The epic podcast for all things Formula One, where we discuss technology, history, news, and perspective. With your hosts, Scott Vick and Corey Green. We're back with F1 Break Check. As with me, as always, is my cohort and partner in crime, Corey Bruin. Corey, how are you doing today, sir? Good. Just starting to wrap up for the holiday season. Have a couple of meetings tomorrow, but for the most part, I'm pretty much finished for this week and then also all of next week. Nice. Planning to sit back, relax, not do too much. So what about you? Yep, pretty much the same way. Is it's uh, I'm on my real job. I'm using the air quotes here, my real job yeah. <laughs> uh, until Thursday. And then starting Friday, I'm like you, I'm off of my real job until after the first of the year. So, but I'm not going to lie that my brain is pretty much already checked out. There are so many people that are out already this week that today was probably about the most chill day at work that I've had in months. <laughs> so it's been kind of nice to, to kind of get a chance to catch my breath and get caught up on a few things and not have yeah. people pestering me every 15 right. seconds. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this week, my brain has been just pretty much shut off since mid last week. The motivation that has always carried me through just is waning really deep right now. So hopefully my boss isn't listening. <laughs> yes. Hopefully, or he doesn't hear it until after you're already on vacation. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. So had a really great time last Friday night. Yeah. Uh, Corey and I got to do the uh, in real life thing to hang out, eat some really great fried chicken. And for those of you who aren't in the U.S., it's a Southern staple. And then we got to go enjoy some really, really nice cigars and drank a few beers and just got to shoot the breeze about F1 and everything else. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we had a really good cigar, too. One of the yes. guys from Industrial recommended it to pair with the beer that we were drinking. And it was, man, it was spot on. Yes, excellent recommendation and to be perfectly honest with you i can't wait to go back and have another one same here absolutely so all right then well let's go let's get into our news and rumors section for this week announcement overnight we're recording this on monday december the 18th and overnight ferrari have already announced the reveal day for their 2024 car they're going to reveal it on february the 13th which is a couple weeks ahead of the first preseason test and they have already said that Carlos Sainz has already said that the in the at least in the simulator, what they've modeled for the new car, he says it already feels completely different. Now, whether or not wow. that's a good thing or a bad thing, yeah. we don't know yet. <laughs> yeah, it's completely <laughs> different. It's slow. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Hopefully that's it's not the like, case. <laughs> yes. It's kind of like the meme, you know, it's like where somebody did a, I don't know if you saw, I'm sure you've seen it, the meme where it shows a picture of Max Verstappen, and then they're typing into chat GPT, how to make this driver slower, and then it shows him being in a Ferrari. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's horrible. (laughs) Yes, it is. I mean, it's just horrible, because that was the thing, though, is that Ferrari 
especially towards the latter end of the year, they had a really good car. Their car was really pretty fast. So I don't think it's necessarily at the beginning of the season, I could say, yeah, but you could have said that about just about any car on the grid at the beginning of the season. But towards the end, you couldn't say that about the Ferrari, just like you couldn't say that about the McLaren. Ferrari being the first ones to announce it, though, I'm sure that we're going to hear way more announcements, especially there'll be, I guarantee you that there'll be at least a couple more before the holiday break. And what we don't hear before the holiday break, we'll probably hear next week. But the teams do try to coordinate so that they're not all revealing their cars on the same day to make it a little easier for the press, especially in Great Britain. So, and even Vassar said that we've coordinated. Somebody else is already planning on doing theirs on the 14th. So we decided to do it on the 13th because the 14th would have been exactly one year since they introduced the 2023 car because they introduced it on february 14th of this year so they had to step back a day vassar made the joke about how it's going to give them extra time to prepare the car before the first preseason test (laughs) 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 all right next thing that announcement comes right on the heels of netflix announcing that the next season of drive to survive will actually premiere on february 23rd of 2024 so, Corey, how excited are you for uh, the next season of Drive to Survive? It all depends on how they, they go about it. If they did it like they did the first couple of seasons of Drive to Survive, where it's more about the racing and the teams, then perfect. Uh, I'm super excited. But the last season, and even really a couple of seasons before that, they've really been more getting into the drama aspect of drive to survive and really even creating drama where there isn't drama you know and that's the thing that honestly that it just turns me off i I don't like one i i hate anything celebrity or who's dating what or who's mad at I, i just i could care less about any of that stuff just give me the races give me the behind the scene type stuff and i'm happy so i'm hoping that they go back to that so Hopefully that that answers the question there. What about you? (laughs) Yeah, well, I'm like you that, yes, I like the the behind the scenes stuff. My biggest fear is is I'm just afraid that it's just going to be eight episodes of everybody bitching about how good Red Bull is and how they can't catch up. But because as we saw that even though despite as dominant as, as Red Bull was this year, that especially towards the end of the season, that you definitely saw Ferrari and McLaren and mercedes all you know nipping at their heels they weren't quite good enough to catch them but they were getting close that i have a sneaking suspicion that next year we're going to see a much more level playing field i'm hoping that it's not they're going to be trying to create drama by constantly showing clips of people complaining about how red bull was dominating it's a good enough series to where you don't need any of that crap you just it's not needed why put it in there we shall see. So, but yeah. uh, I'll still be excited to at least see the first episode to see kind of what direction they're going to go for the season. Cause I, the first episode will usually pretty much set the tone for the season. And so I think pretty much first episode, maybe first two episodes, we're going to kind of know what we're being given this year. <laughs> yeah. First couple. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Absolutely. So did you see where this is all just rumor? So I don't know if this was actually true, but apparently someone offered Red Bull one billion u.s dollars to buy alfatari and red bull turned them down 
Yeah, they're worth more than that, right? I thought they were worth like 1.2 billion. I thought that 1 billion was about right for AlphaTauri, but the fact that Red Bull believes enough in the program, a lot of people have to remember that yes, because AlphaTauri is technically classified as the quote-unquote junior team, that AlphaTauri isn't just developing drivers for Red Bull. Yeah. AlphaTauri is up and down from top to bottom is grooming the next generation of talent as far as mechanics, engineers, right. yeah, it's a PR people. Before they get to yeah. the senior, yeah. So roughly a billion dollars is about what AlphaTauri is worth. Red Bull believes enough in the program and the fact that not only are they developing the next generation of drivers who will eventually be there to take over a seat for Red Bull should Verstappen get sick or hurt or same thing with Checo. Should one of those drivers not perform, as we've seen, drivers get yanked out of that Red Bull seat. You know, we saw it happen with Alvaro. Yeah, exactly. The fact that they turned down that amount of money because they believed that much, they felt that the benefit that owning that quote-unquote junior team, they saw the value in that was worth much more than the monetary value that the team is valued at and that they've been offered. So your thoughts? I see AlphaTauri as being worth more than just money, like exactly what you were saying. They're worth more from a development standpoint. If a driver, say five years down the line, Checo's somewhere else and retired or whatever, and they have a new driver in there, just like they did with Albon, or they didn't do that with Albon, they did that with Gasly, sent him down to the to the junior team. Mm-hmm. That's a perfect place. And it's a perfect place for farming as well. So AlphaTauri will grow and enrich these, these drivers and eventually they can get up to the senior team. So I see that much more valuable than, again, than money. Because if, if that were to go away, where do they farm from? F2, yes. F3? Maybe, but still, those drivers are unproven. As we've seen rookie years, I don't see them wanting to to sell that at any point. I agree. And you made a very, very good point that it's one thing to farm out or pull from F2. There's much more value in being able to, to pull someone from who already has experience in F1. Yeah. You know, maybe, you know, further down the grid in, in like I, you know, I keep saying in the quote unquote junior team. Mm-hmm. But they're still in Formula One. They're still rubbing shoulders on a daily basis with the big brother team and the other teams. And so they know the behind the scenes stuff and they know how the sausage is made. Whereas F2, although they usually run on the same weekends as Formula One, there's still that separation, yeah. that gap in professionalism, know-how, knowledge transfer, things like that, that don't quite translate from F2 to F1, yeah. like going from a slightly lesser funded F1 team to the big brother team. So yes, well, you, I think I think you hit the nail on the head there. The other thing to consider too is the, the stress. F1 has a ton more stress than you'll yes. ever see. And again, my biased opinion, in any other uh, racing series, but most especially F1, F2, and F3, you just won't have that kind of stress. And even lower in the grid cars are still going to be a ton faster than the cars that you drive in F2 and F3. So that, the media commitments, all that combined in really will help shape the driver, even if they are on a smaller team. All right, then. So did you happen to see Christian Horner's comments on what made the RB19 this year so much better? Uh -uh. 
Okay, so it's basically the RB19 went on a crash diet. Apparently it went on Atkins or something. And uh, Christian Horner said that that was the biggest difference between the 2022 car and the 2023 car was the fact that because of them fighting for the championship right down to the wire in 2021 and constantly having to work on the 2021 car, they kind of got a late start on the car in 2022. And so it actually came in a little, well, considerably overweight. And he said that that was the single biggest factor was the fact that the RB19 actually lost over 20 kilos over. Wow. Yeah. Over the 2022 RB18. So, and that's so, yeah. So it's like basically, yeah. I mean, 20 kilos is nothing to sneeze at, especially in the realms of formula one where everything is micrograms yeah, and stuff exactly you know, difference in saving to, to lose 20 kilos yeah is that's tremendous well that's what i was thinking because in every year they're taking as much out of that car as possible from a weight perspective for them to find 20 kilos to take out of a car wow that's yeah amazing how much they must have taken out of that car yeah, I mean, because 20 kilos, I mean, when converted, it is like 44 pounds, for almost 45 pounds. That's yeah. like half a max for stopping. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding, Max. I'm just kidding. But because Formula One drivers are so fit and they are so conscientious about their diets, they're all, you know, let's all oh, yeah. let's admit it, they're all ripped as hell and skinny as hell, you know. They have that, to be, you yeah. Know, most of them probably don't weigh more than 130, 140 pounds. Russell, who's probably the tallest driver on the grid currently, you got to think that he's probably doesn't come in at more than 145, 150 pounds. Yeah. You know, I don't have their stats in front of me, so I'm just guessing, but just guessing by looking at them, I would say, yeah, he's probably not more than 145, 150 pounds. So, I mean, to lose 45 pounds, that's almost a third of a, a George Russell. Yeah. <laughs> that's so funny though. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true, right? I mean, yes, you're, you're taking that much out. It's just shocking to me how much so I'm looking well, at George Russell is 70 kilos, 70 kilos. That's what it says right here. <laughs> okay. So 70 kilos is 154 pounds. So I was pretty, pretty much. Yeah, you, were on. On. you were dead on. Yes. Losing 44, almost 45 pounds is literally like losing a third of a George Russell. And you have to remember that rule of thumb is that when it comes to most motorsports, one pound equals to one-tenth of a second. Yeah. So to lose 40 kilos, that's like losing, you figure one-tenth of a second per pound to 45 pounds. Yeah, you're looking at probably about four and a half seconds God. faster. The, the RB19 should have been theoretically over. Right. Now, I know with Formula One, it doesn't quite equal out to a one-to-one -one like it does in, in a lot of other motorsports and stuff. Yeah. But you figure even if it's a half a tenth, five thousandths of a, a second, that's still a couple seconds faster yep. than the car would have been the previous year. So, I mean, exactly. it's just, to me, that is just incredible. The fact that they were able to find that kind of weight reduction for the previous car. A bit of trivia. Who do you yes. think on the grid weighs the most? I'm going to go with either Russell because of his height, or I'm going to go with Alonzo because Alonzo is such a stocky guy. Where is he? He, no, he's not. It's actually Nico Hulkenberg. 
He's at 78 really? kilograms. Yes. Alonzo is actually at 68. So he's okay. somewhere in the middle. Who's the yes. light? You'll get this one. No oh, oh th- this one's easy. That would be definitely be Yuki. Yuki Sonoda. Because <laughs> yeah, he's like, what? Five, three, five, four? I mean, this guy <laughs> is like our height, you know? <laughs> in fact, we actually would probably tower over you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he weighs 54 kilos. Wow. Yeah. Most everybody else is is in the low 70s. So just a bit of Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. (laughs) That's fun. Yeah. One of the things that we've talked about quite a bit here on the podcast is not just about how good of a driver that Max Verstappen is, but the fact that part of what makes him so good is the fact that he is willing to put in so much work into maximizing every part of being a formula one driver he maximizes his fitness he maximizes his diet it's his work ethic and the fact that he gets every ounce of performance out of the car that he possibly can well this week jock villeneuve came out and basically said the same thing that we've been saying for months about verstappen is the fact that if any driver on the grid wants to equal verstappen They're going to have to take and start putting a whole lot more work because the fact that Verstappen, the minute he gets out of the car, he's already in his brain. He's already working on the next race or the next event. But he spends so much time in the simulator, both at the factory and at home. Supposedly, I saw a thing this week that said that Max's own personal rig is rumored to have cost roughly around 35 or 40,000 US dollars just to build his wow. own personal sim to get it as close to reality as possible wow. and that That's not crazy. only does he have the one at home but apparently he now has one that he put into his private jet as well so that while he's in the air traveling between events he can be in the simulator practicing that is the kind of work ethic that it takes to be a world champion yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> and delete as, as much as he did so again yes you can bellyache about red bull the car being blah 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 what have you i haven't heard anybody else doing the same thing no the only other driver that i've heard that puts in probably approaching the same amount of time is lando to the point yeah. where lando actually landed a actual sponsorship with logitech because he took wow. me, he helped develop a pro style wheel with Logitech that he uses himself. And so Lando spends a lot of time in the sim himself. There's not a lot of the drivers that you don't hear about them putting in that kind of work. And we even talked about it with the Las Vegas race, that even though he yeah. had absolutely nothing to prove by winning at Las Vegas, but he even made the comments that as soon as he finished in Brazil, he flew back to the factory and yep. spent that extra time in the sim at the factory practicing because if he hadn't come to las vegas and hadn't won he would have been sorely disappointed in himself if he hadn't won because he hadn't put in the work and he put in the work and dominated that race the man's work ethic i just think is absolutely unrivaled the drivers are going to have to start spending way more time in both the factory sims and their own personal sims and we're getting more and more away from the playboy image of Formula One drivers that we had back when I started watching Formula One back in the the early 80s. Last little news thing to talk about today is, did you see Zach Brown's comments about the cost cap? I haven't. Okay, so Zach Brown this week in a interview made the comments about how Formula One needs to really change the rules 
around things like the wind tunnel and testing now that they have the cost cap in place. Because as we've talked about here on the podcast, that one of the things that I really miss was the fact that the teams used to test constantly both preseason and during the season they haven't been able to do that for the last few years because of the rules that were put into place by the FIA well the FIA put those rules into place as a cost-cutting measure a few years ago so what Zach Brown was saying is that now that the cost cap is in place they need to get rid of these other rules and allow the teams to spend the money however they so desire, that they shouldn't have any regulations on, that that it should just be a hard cap, and that it should just be a hard cap, and they should be able to spend the money however they want to. So if they want to take and do more testing, they can. If they want to spend more time in the wind tunnel, they can. Because also, that's another thing, too, that before the cost cap came into place, Formula One instituted a limit on the amount of time that the teams can use their own wind tunnels. These are the wind tunnels that they built, that they paid for themselves. But the FIA has said, okay, you can only use it so many hours per season. And the number of hours is based on a sliding scale based on how the team performed in the Constructors' Championship the previous year. So it's based upon their finishing position. The lower they are in the ranking, the more hours they get in the wind tunnel. Zach was saying that, no, they want to spend all their time, all their resources on wind tunnel testing, great. If they want to spend it on the track, great. But let them decide how little or how much of these things that they want to spend their money on so long as they can stay under the cost cap which I totally agree. So what are your thoughts on that? I totally agree. I think that as long as you get it underneath that cost cap, being able to go into the wind tunnel, especially if you own that wind tunnel, I don't see a problem with that. You're already restricting them from testing time in general, track time and things like that. So you're already restricting the higher ranked teams. As far as wind tunnel access and things like that, again, I just, it doesn't make sense to me. I understood When they instituted those caps on wind tunnel testing time, on testing and things like that, I understood why they did it. It was to keep the big money teams like the Red Bulls and the Mercedes and the Ferraris who had full manufacturer money behind them because they were at the sharp end of the grid. They had the largest annual budgets and that's how they stayed there at the top. Same thing with McLaren is that's how they managed to stay at the top of the grid was simply because they could just outspend everybody. And so I understood when they started introducing some of these cost-cutting measures in order to try to help bring along some of the smaller teams, the less well-funded teams. I understood that back then. But now that they have a hard cost cap in place, which that's another that's thing it. too. That, yeah. um, right. Zach didn't say anything about it, but there was somebody else that I saw, but, and I'll get to that in a minute. But now that they have a hard cost cap in place for development of the cars and, and how much money that the teams are allowed to spend, these other restrictions now no longer make sense. I agree with Zach that they really need to be done away with because they're no longer relevant. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. Yeah. Like you said, so, they were at a certain point in time, but they're not anymore. Yeah, they're no longer relevant. The only other thing that I could see being a limiter on it would be Pirelli saying we can only provide so many tires. But the problem is, though, is that Pirelli is constantly producing tires for every race weekend. The tires are manufactured for specific tracks. Yeah. So like the tires that they bring to Silverstone are built specifically for Silverstone. But those tires that are not used or maybe only light, lightly used on a given race weekend, 
instead of just completely recycling them, they could be put into storage. And then if a team calls up Pirelli and says, hey, we're going to go testing at Silverstone this weekend, we need a complement of tires. And then Pirelli can pull those unused tires if it was a set of lightly used tires that were used by that particular team. The only other rule that I can see that they might have to change is the around the number of power units and the parts that go on the power units. I would say that they would probably need to increase the number of power units allowed one of the other rules that I think that definitely needs to be changed is the cost of repairs. I have never agreed with the fact that the cost of repairs have always been lumped in as part of the hard cost cap. Yeah. And I think that the teams should be able to take provide quote unquote receipts to the FIA that says, hey, we had a bad shunt this weekend. It cost us 700,000 euros to repair the car. Here's the receipts. Here's the itemized breakdown. And I think that that amount of money that they need to repair the car should not go against their cost cap. I could see that. But the, the problem, though, is if Red Bull gets in a wreck, it's almost like a write-off. It's like almost like a rounding error, right? Whereas if Haas gets in an accident, that's not a rounding error. That is a huge cost to them. I can see the cost of repair being part of the cap for the bigger teams, for the Red Bulls, Mercedes, like you were saying, Ferraris, teams like that. But mm -hmm. maybe take it out for the lower teams. What do you think about that? Actually, now that you said that, and I've thought about it for a second, actually, that's not a bad idea to also have a sliding scale that says, depending upon your placement in the previous year's Constructors Championship, you are allowed X amount of money that you can spend yeah. over the cap on car repairs. So a champion like Red Bull would have, say, 0%. But Haas comes in dead last in the Constructors Championship that they say, okay, you can spend 20% over the budget cap for repairs to the car. Yeah, I think that that would actually would work quite well is to have that sliding scale, but only for repairs. Yes. Yeah, you would have to be very specific on that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, their accounting would actually have, you know, would have to show that, yes, this money that we spent over the cap was for repairs. Here's the itemized repair cost and things like that. We should work at the FIA. Yeah, I, th I agree. I, I think you and I could do a hell of a bang up job. <laughs> yeah, in our first year. Yes, absolutely. Let's move on. I know that you're kind of more of a quote-unquote newish fan. To Especially compared Formula to you, One. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when I say the name Flavio Briatore, you know, beyond what we've talked about on the podcast right. on a handful of occasions, when I say the name Flavio Briatore, what comes to mind? A liar? <laughs> <laughs> For someone like me, like you said, I've been a Formula One fan since 1983. I've seen the last 30-plus years of the sport and when I hear the name Flavio Briatore, I think of the greatest con man in the history of Formula One. Uh, well, maybe not the greatest one, because there's actually another story that we'll explore yeah. on another podcast. But uh, he is definitely up good. there as one of the greatest con men and notorious cheaters in the history of F1. Wow. So Flavio Briatore was a Italian businessman who started as a restaurant manager and an insurance salesman and a ski instructor. He had all kinds of odd jobs, but he was actually convicted multiple times on multiple counts of fraud, tax evasion, 
everything else like that before he even came into Formula One. He was convicted twice in Italy, once for, I believe it was insurance fraud, and the other time he was part of a ring of con men who actually would invite people to dinner, con them into gambling on card games and stuff, and they were using rigged card decks and rigged gaming machines in order to build people out of money. And he was actually sentenced to multiple prison sentences. And in order to escape it, he actually fled Italy and became a fugitive in the Virgin Islands until the point where the way that Italian law is written is that after, kind of like we have a statute of limitations in the U.S., that after a certain amount of time, if he hasn't served his prison sentence, then he's basically given amnesty and he can walk away. So he never spent a day in prison despite having been convicted of these crimes. While he's in the Virgin Islands, he starts several successful Benetton franchises, both in the Virgin Islands and in the U.S. And this was when Benetton uh, was first making a foray into the U.S. market. For the people outside of the U.S., Benetton is a clothing brand that was very, very popular in Europe. During the late 70s, early 80s, they really started to make a push into the U.S., more mid-80s, late 90s. I can remember when the first Benetton store popped up in the U.S., and they made a big thing about it. So anyway, so Briatore's managing these Benetton stores. He's actually getting a cut of the franchise fee from the stores in the U.S. and in the U.S. Virgin Islands. Because of this, he takes and gets promoted by Luciano Benetton, the CEO of Benetton at the time. He actually gets appointed as the commercial director for the Benetton F1 team in 1990. And then shortly after he's named commercial director, they fire the team principal, the technical director, and they fire a number of the top executives and they put Briatori in charge in 1991. So Briatori's running the team and there's all kinds of rumor that, that Benetton is cheating. In 1993, he manages to basically steal Michael Schumacher out from the, underneath the nose of Eddie Jordan. It basically became a another example of who has the better lawyers And so Benetton actually got to keep the rights to Michael Schumacher, but he got to Benetton in a very underhanded way, which had Briatore's fingerprints all over it. Then 1994, we've talked a couple of times about the different events in 1994, about how tragic a season it was, you know, when we lost Ayrton Senna, terrible pit fire at Hockenheim at the German Grand Prix Benetton was involved with. There was a multiple allegations of Benetton cheating during the 1994 season that there was things like they removed fuel regulators from the fueling rigs that's part of what led to the cause of the fire at Hockenheim was because they bunkied around with the regulators on the fueling rig in order to take and get more fuel into the car faster that's what caused the gate to stay open so that when they pulled the fueling rig out of Yasper Stoppin's car. That's what caused the fuel to splash all over it and caused the inferno. Is that how they got caught? That was one of them that they got caught on. They also got caught cheating because the year before, Formula One had outlawed the use of launch control on the cars because in the early 90s, they actually engineered the software. They could hit a button on the steering wheel that would perfectly match the revs to the bite point on the clutch so that they could take and get the best start. 
Well, in 1993, along with active suspension and traction control, they outlawed launch control. Well, Benetton had secretly embedded a launch control in their software that the FIA, it took them a couple of years to finally find it, but when they got the source code from Benetton and they had to comb through it, it turns out that Benetton had actually built a very complicated and elaborate sequence that the driver had to go through to activate the launch control, but it was hidden and buried in the software. It was things like you had to like press in on the clutch, press a certain button on the steering wheel, blip the throttle to a certain RPM. And so like I said, it was a very complicated system, but it was in there. And now they said that they had disabled and that they weren't using it, but that it was in there. But everyone knows, especially after, the, I forget which race it was, but Michael Schumacher made a start that the only way that he could have made that start was using launch control. There was no way that any driver on the earth, even as good as Michael Schumacher was, he was using launch control, so you know he had it activated. Wow. So they so got caught he was, for that. He was complicit in the cheating as well then. Yes, he, wow. he very much was. Yes, because like I said, it required a series of several steps in order to activate the launch control. Wow. Schumacher actually also got suspended for two races because of some of the other cheating that was going on, including there were several times that they ran the ride height so low we talked earlier this year at Austin when Lewis and Leclerc yeah. were disqualified because their plank was worn down too much. Well, when the plank was first introduced, we talked about this at, at that time, that when the plank was first introduced, Michael Schumacher actually got disqualified from a race because his plank had worn down too much because they had set the ride height of the car so low that it had worn down the plank to the point where it was not within spec. And he got suspended for that, or he got disqualified for that race. And he also got suspended where he was not allowed to race at all for two races because of all of these different cheating that Benetton was doing. Years later, it came out that all of this cheating all came from the very top, from all directives from Briatori. Wow. Yeah. Then in also towards the tail end of 1994, while Briatori is still running the Benetton team, he buys the troubled Leger team and puts Tom Walkinshaw in one of the great technical minds of Formula One, puts him in charge of the team. By doing so, that takes and gives him control over Leger's Renault engine supply because Leger was a French team and they were one of the quote-unquote works teams for Renault along with Williams. They now gave Benetton access to the Renault engines for 1995. Because in 1994, they were still running Ford customer engines. They were running the Ford Cosworth V8 customer engines. And so this gave them access to the Renault V10s in starting in 1995. So not a conflict of interest there. No, <laughs> not at all. So then in 1997, he gets ousted at Benetton. So in 1998, Renault decides to withdraw from Formula One. And so Briatori, under the name Supertech, takes and buys all of the assets from Renault so that they can continue to provide power plants for various teams. They provided under the Mechachrome badge, they provided motors to Williams, British American Racing, Arrows, and Benetton between 1997 and 2000 or 2001. But the thing was, is that a number of the teams actually complained the fact that he was charging them exorbitant amounts of money for the engine leases. And as the years went on, the engine, which when Renault left the sport, was literally the best engine in Formula One. 
Yeah. And over those years, because he put almost no development work into the motors, they started slipping further and further back on the grid because the engines weren't keeping up with Ferraris and a Mercedes at that time. Claren was the works team for Mercedes and Mercedes wasn't actually a full constructor at that point. They were just simply an engine supplier. Mm. And there was also rumors of rampant fraud and embezzling going on at Ooh, super tech Ooh. while Briatori was managing it. That's so, so crazy. Then, and on top of that, while managing Benetton, Briatori had gone into driver management and he was the manager for Alonzo, hmm. Mark Weber, Yarno Truly, Nelson Piquet Jr., and Hideki Kovalein. All oh. of these drivers at one point or another drove yeah. for. Benetton. <laughs> and especially in 2001, Renault bought Benetton to become a full constructor again in Formula One. And the first thing that they did in late 2000 was put Briatori in charge for the 2001 season. While he is the head of Benetton, Mark Weber was the only driver on that list who did not drive for Benetton at some point. Wow. Every single one of those other drivers drove for Benetton at some point while he was their manager and while he was head of Benetton. Again, not a conflict. Yeah, no, no. Like I said, the list just keeps growing. So in 2007, the FIA found Renault guilty of possessing internal technical documents on the 2006 and 2007 McLaren F1 cars. Somebody had actually pilfered actual technical documents about the McLaren and it provided them to Renault. Good. Again, all under Briatori's watch. Yeah. Um, and then finally, there was the 2008 race fixing scandal, which we actually talked about during the Singapore Grand Prix, that during the Singapore Grand Prix, he actually gave a coded message to Nelson Piquet Jr. to basically crash the car to bring out the safety car at the end of the race, which Very basically good. handed Fernando Alonso the race win and therefore the driver's championship. And the only reason why it came to light was is that the following year, Briatori very unceremoniously fired Nelson Piquet Jr. And now as a disgruntled employee, he basically told the world what he was told oh. to do. And so the FIA did an investigation. And at the end of it, they found Briatori guilty and banned him from any Formula One sanctioned events for life. Wow. But he's still and involved it, in F1 today, right? He is, is still involved in F1 today because he sued the FIA <laughs> in a French tribunal and was actually able to get them to overturn his FIA conviction, chances are very slim that he will ever run an F1 team again. But he is still the manager of drivers, and he still is able to appear on the grid during F1 weekends. So we've actually seen him a couple times this year. I couldn't find what year he bought it, but he bought a super yacht that he then apparently was renting out you know, leasing to other people. And then in 2010, the boat gets seized because of charges of tax evasion <laughs> by Briatori. And then on top of that, in 2007, he bought the Queens Park Rangers football club and named himself yeah. chairman. The only thing is, is that the Champions League actually went back to the FIA and said, hey, we want all the documents on his cheating that went on during 2008. 
And they said basically they were investigating him saying that because of the way that the league's bylaws were written is that anyone who wasn't an upstanding character was not allowed to be an owner of any of their clubs. And so he was actually forced to step down as the chairman and actually sold off his stake in the club later on because of (laughs) <laughs> the investigation into the cheating. Right, so, you know, people like that, it always makes me laugh because you always think, what if this person put half as much energy into actually doing good and playing by the rules? Because they're highly intelligent. There's no doubt about this person is really intelligent. If this that could just be used for good instead of all the stuff that he's been doing is just crazy. Yeah, agreed. Literally, you have over two decades of just a continuous pattern in the U.S. who know who John Gotti is. He was called the Teflon Don because the U.S. for the longest time couldn't make any. He was a, a very well-known mobster. And for the longest time, the U.S. could never get any charges to stick on this guy. Briatori kind of reminds me a lot of that, where it was like he was constantly getting caught for fraud, tax evasion, things like that. But nothing ever seems to right. stick. And he's never spent a day in jail Because even though he has just shown a continuous pattern over three decades, because you know this stuff all started even before he got to Formula One, you know, as we talked about at the very top that he was convicted for fraud and things like that before he even got to Formula One. So it's like who in their right mind would put somebody like this in such a high profile position in Formula One? And not think that he wasn't going to do something underhanded like that. Right. I think the chances of him ever having anything other than as a manager of drivers, I don't think that he'll ever be in any other kind of high profile position in Formula One. Even the drivers, you got to think that there are certain teams that will probably say that, no, we're not going to ever touch any driver that Briatore manages ever. In this day and age, in this media environment, I think that finally he's not going to be able to take and get away with this, <laughs> get away with that kind of crap anymore. Yeah, but somebody else will. <laughs> yes, that's so very, very true in racing that if you're not cheating, you're not winning. <laughs> I guarantee you that every single one of the Formula One teams is cheating in some way, shape, or form. They are pressing up against the edge of the rules. They are getting as close to the line as they possibly can in order to gain every advantage that they possibly can. But the problem is, is that, okay, what happens when they cross over that line? And that was the problem was, is that Briatori as a team principal was constantly, I mean, just not just stepping over the line. I mean, he was obliterating the line. (laughs) I mean, to him, the line didn't exist. There's one of the craziest characters in Formula One because he has his finger in other pies too, just outside of Formula One. You wonder, you know, what else has he got his finger in? That That he he didn't get caught, yeah. He hasn't gotten caught yet on, or he's gotten caught, but we just don't know about it because for whatever reason, it wasn't as high profile as... Formula One or owning a football club or anything like that. Not only does he go in the pantheon of one of the biggest cheats in Formula One, I think he goes in the pantheon as one of the biggest con men in the history. That's funny, man. I love that story, though. All right, then. So you think I think we should wrap it up here? Yeah, I think we're good. All right, then. So, all right, then. Well, folks, thank you for listening to Corey and I ramble on for a little bit. Hopefully, you found it entertaining. Hopefully, you found it educational. And we look forward to coming back to you next week where we'll talk about, again, more news and rumors. We're going to definitely see some more announcements as far as when cars will be revealed. 
And we'll also have another interesting topic for you. Until then, thank you for listening to F1 Break Check. Thank you for listening to F1 Break Check. If you have enjoyed what you heard, don't miss a single episode by hitting that subscribe button in your favorite podcatcher. Also, help us grow by sharing us with your friends and fellow F1 fans. We value your feedback and passion, so please take a moment to review our podcast. Your reviews help us grow and improve, and it means the world to us. Share your thoughts, rate us, and let us know how we can make the show experience even better. F1 Break Check is a production of Break Check Media. For your hosts Scott Dick and Corey Broom, until next time stay inside track limits, and try not to pitch it in the kitty litter.